North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, are you going to pay more for gas in Denver than you were in Indianapolis area? Well, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne. Generally, no, actually. You have a lower octane because of the much higher elevation. And that's usually cheaper than, uh, you know, regular grade gas that I pay for here. The other thing that I've mentioned before on the show, though, is that distribution is causing gas to be more expensive in a very low tax red state like Indiana than it is in Illinois right now for much of this year. So, uh, which is high tax and doesn't have any gas tax relief, such as they're discussing in in certain blue states like California. So I, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm going to pay a lot for gas no matter where I go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But but no, living in a uh, low-cost red state has not actually benefited me as far as gas goes so far this year. I've had a rule for the last couple of years for my wife who, you know, she, she takes advantage of our Costco membership. And whenever we're at Costco, she'll make sure to, uh, or when she goes to Costco, she'll make sure to fill up the tank. I, I don't think that's unwise. Um, but Costco for us, as for many people in the world, is on the opposite side of where you live, wherever that is, they put it somewhere else and it's it's a good drive, <laughs> right? It's kind of the way it works out. And, um, and so she would actually at times take that 20, 25 minute drive just to fill up the tank. And I said, love, you know, are you worth, you know, what are you worth? Are you worth 10 bucks for an hour of your time? No, I'm probably worth more than that. Yeah. Okay. Well then you're not saving any money right now, right? You're, you don't, don't do it. <laughs> now this week I changed my mind this week. It's like 25 buck difference, right? Like we had <laughs> Costco was, uh, was at $4 and three cents and gas on my side of town hit four sixty. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, now, it is. I'm bringing this up because of your opening kind of bullet point, the pace of energy determines the pace of life. And I think that's a good illustration. 
It is something about which we don't think because no one alive today remembers the pace of life before fossil fuels. You would have to be born probably before roughly the American Civil War in order to remember such a thing. Whether you have coal and steam engines or you have natural gas or you have electricity or you have gasoline driving internal combustion engines, nobody remembers that world. The managerial changes that we've been discussing, not so much last week, but in the, in the couple of weeks before that, those managerial changes were not induced all of a sudden, like someone sat there and thought, I want total control over people's lives. How do I do that? And then was able to actually get that to happen. Human life is, and in all of its facets, including government, including media, including the corporation that you hate working for, all of these things are induced much more by factors outside of their control, or at least somewhat outside of their control, than they care to admit or than anyone knows enough to remember. So we want to start going way back from the 1920s into something maybe more like the 1820s in order to understand what life was like, not only when gas was cheaper, right? And so it just, it costs less to drive across the country. It costs less to deliver your food to the Costco, buy the diesel truck. Lots of things cost less. Life was cheaper. It was better for normal people. Land was cheaper, gas was cheaper, cars were cheaper. That's all within living memory. And I think that's part of the pain. In addition to that is this fact that the world is the way it is and people have the kinds of media control and apparently the desire to make gas as absurdly, ex as a, as absurdly expensive as it is. All of that is possible because we live in a world that has energy that can be used or can be taken away, can be made to feel painful when you're deprived of it. When the world is powered essentially by what the sun can do and what the wind can do, and then what human and animal muscles can do, everything is gonna be slower and simpler. A book that I've referenced before that you'd really, if you like this show, you, you probably like this book too. <laughs> It has even more historical detail than the show does is Alfred Chandler's The Visible Hand, The Managerial Revolution in American Business, because his description of how these things change is, is marvelous and, and, and utterly accurate. In fact, he references James Burnham, whom we've used before in the show, and he says, the problem with Burnham's understanding that managers have come into control of the world is that he's right, but because he doesn't know enough about history, he doesn't know how or why precisely. He's just describing that they are in control. And especially if you want to change something, understanding how and why the thing that you want to change is the way it is, is at least as important for the purposes of change as your initial growing awareness that it is in control and that its control is terrible. So Chandler starts out in this place that we have started this week, which is with the world before the advent of energy sources that were just enormously more powerful than anything the world had seen before. And this is a revolution that Carol Quigley doesn't cover very much. He covers the industrial revolution, but doesn't talk about, let's say, an energy revolution. So I think he's a little lacking in insight on this, that you go from a world that is made by hand, by necessity, into a world made by machines. The difference being, I'll just take kind of a homely example to start this off, is that in Farmer Boy, set in upstate New York, therefore my favorite, of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. It's also about a boy, so I've always liked that one better, just obviously. The parents have what are probably described for Sunday as clothing made by, made by machines. Everyone else is wearing what was called homespun and the mother makes the thread and then weaves it together herself from sheep that they raise themselves. Everyone else wears that and the father and the mother wear those things every other day of the week. On the Sabbath, father and mother wear clothing made by machines. And this is a point of pride and a sign also of the father's 
Mr. Wilder's success as a farmer is that he can afford clothing made by machines. All the other days of the week and what all the children have to wear, that homespun, is I think some kind of ideal for a lot of people, maybe many of you listening to the show, that the whole world would be homespun and everything that you do would be made by you. That was for the people on this sort of cusp or this edge in 19th century America, as well as in Europe, where these things were happening, where these sources of energy were beginning to be utilized. And Padma's clothing in that case was really just made. It was just made by essentially, you know, primitive steam power and primitive water power used in mills in New England. But even so, it's a mark of pride. They sort of sensed that what could be done with these newer energy sources was better and much more finely made than what they could do themselves. And that's what they wanted. You can have your judgments on that. But at the time when these sources of energy are largely mixed in people's lives or traditional sources of energy are still predominant, but not unique, people want what newer sources of energy can do. And that, that will speed up life eventually. But even before life was significantly sped up, even when it was much slower, people themselves were making decisions that said what newer energy can do is just better. It, it's finer. It's better made. It's more durable. We don't want everything homespun, even though homespun is good for other purposes. I already asked about zombies a long time ago. And this, <laughs> this does relate, though. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, it's not directly in the line you're going, but mm-hmm. before we go in that line, not when I ask this with the word, is it possible? I'm not saying like, like, could it be done if we tried? I mean, more in the lines of, like realistically, percentage-wise, is this a possible future we need to prepare for? Is a post-fossil fuel world possible? Is it something that you foresee as a potential reality? I know that our reading of Aguirre's uh, Argentina book implies first world countries don't fall into the Middle Ages. They fall into uh, collapsed first world countries. Uh that said, yeah. uh, we're not quite living in the same situation he was in. So, yeah. Yeah, this, is, uh, this has been a source of speculation. There's a, there's a podcast that I used to listen to. The guy's gone in sort of a different direction, so I haven't been terribly interested, but it's called Hermetics. It's a British guy, and he's in, interviewed a guy named James Howard Kunstler several times who has written both fiction and nonfiction. Also lives in upstate New York, just coincidentally. Fiction and nonfiction about post-industrial or that is utterly de-industrialized non-fossil fuel using worlds. And the thing that has always seemed not impossible, strictly speaking, but to sort of your second permutation of the question, unrealistic to me is that I don't observe that the elites, for example, gave up, for instance, on fine dining during COVID. (laughs) They just... They just did it surreptitiously, right? So you get these bootleg photos of Gavin Newsom eating out, you know, when no one else can even, you know, really leave the house. One person in the grocery store at a time, no kids, thank you. Gavin Newsom is still eating eating out. So I don't I don't observe that these things are going to go away. I observe that they will be limited in their availability. That that to me would track with the way many things have gone, right? So having plenty of space to yourself or to your home is pretty normal in American history. Being very crowded, it, you know, just physically where you live is relatively abnormal. Certainly in the whole course of our nation's history, it's pretty abnormal. There has generally been plenty of space. There will, I think, in 50 years time, all things continuing as they do now, <laughs> God forbid. But if they do, I don't, I don't think that, you know, the governor of California is going to have trouble getting personal space or space around his house or green space. I think that you and I will have trouble with space around our house or personal space or green space. So those, that, that leads me to believe that what we're doing is we're downscaling. We're not ridding the world of these things, really. 
also because as we've pointed out before in talking about climate change, you need fossil fuels to produce and then to service the forms of energy capture that are presented as cleaner and greener. Right. So you still need some amount of extraction in order to make those things possible. Right. And, and my question really isn't dealing with green energy. It's, it's sort of like a post-fossil fuel-like energy level world. And what you're suggesting is there's going to be a tiered version of that yeah. in right. all likelihood. What the, the piece that to me implies like, it, it, I think it's a long shot, but I don't think that you'd be a complete fool to put a couple chips there. Mm-hmm. is the demographic collapse that if because these uh, mRNA genetic therapies are killing people, at what point does that spiral so that no matter who wants it, you just you can't get it, at least not the same way. There's just not enough people to keep it moving. You know, we built this machine and when the machine has no rats running the wheel, what do you do? And I get that Gavin can sit over there in his restaurant and say, well, I'll just pay someone more. But, well, yeah, um, maybe. Yeah, that is is a problem I don't think they've really thought enough about. I mean, lowered populations or, or, or plateaued populations at the very least have been presented, as we've mentioned before, with Paul Ehrlich's population bomb since at least the 1960s and even earlier in certain conservationist circles as superior. I think I think that there is something very short-sighted about that, apart merely from the question of the, the ills of population density or its, its effect on people's sense of the quality of life. Besides that, you simply cannot keep all that we have going, going with a lowered population, however that is achieved or promoted or attained. So there's something, there's been something very short-sighted. I think it's been short-sighted partly because our elites do not suffer from their own policies. Yeah. So if they, if they bring a change into a school district where now nobody really speaks English and nobody's really being taught anything, the children of the elites do not have to deal with that. They're either in a totally different school district that you have bought into through housing prices, or they're in a private school. They, they have not actually dealt with the consequences of their own actions, partly because of how, let's say the revolution has progressed. That is now happening that the, you know, for, for example, let's say that you are a, 14-year-old boy at the Hotchkiss School or Boston Latin or some other elite institution in the Northeast, or you're at Harvard Westlake in Southern California or whatever, and now you want to be a girl. So you're going to be biochemically damaged for the rest of your life, even if you go back on this when you're you know, 22. But that seems like a long time off. And you're being encouraged by your instructors and, and, and probably tolerated and your parents can certainly afford what needs to be done to turn you into a girl. And, you know, we're not going to describe all those processes on the podcast. I don't, I don't like graphic descriptions of Aztec religious practices any more than the next person. So all of these things happen. You're now marred for life and you are biochemically altered for life in less or, you know, greater evil ways. And, and you would have otherwise been a perfectly functional member of your class. If you had gone from Westlake to Pomona, or you had gone from Hotchkiss to Princeton or whatever, you know, the track was for your class and your people. So that's now not functional. So this is a different situation than what has been going on, let's say for the past 50 years, where in the United States, largely our lower classes have become utterly dysfunctional in a basic life way, right? So black families don't form, white families increasingly don't form, Hispanic families are obese, white families are obese, black families are obese. All of these measures of just basic capacity to function biologically with energy and intelligence are going down. People are depressed, People don't know their own parents and on and on and on, right? I mean, it's just sort of a litany of horrors, right? Where 
you go back and you look at almost any street scene, almost anywhere in America, even including what would be called the ghetto in 1951. And you're like, wow, this is a great neighborhood. <laughs> you know, um, wow. Look how like nice those people look when they go out in public. So that's all going down. That was the lower classes. And we can, especially through the way that our immigration system is structured, we can import new, let's just say serfs, Right. So we don't have to worry as much about the fact that the population is going down or they're not reproducing or when they do reproduce, it's in a, a dysfunctional, horrible way that's going to cause all kinds of problems for their children who they won't know or they won't live with or whatever. Well, now our elites are being affected by their own ideology. So it is still the case that college educated couples stay together longer than high school educated couples. I would be shocked if that gap doesn't close even more than it already has in the future. And the, the ways in which our revolution has gone from not just, you know, North American free trade agreement, deindustrialization, you can't get a decent job if you just have a high school education or whatever, these kinds of things to actually impacting people's daily lives, even if they are members of the elite, that will be catastrophic because a state cannot survive the death of its own elites at one at, at, a, at some point you know the romans got really worried they're like wow we don't have too many romans left here in rome <laughs> we're supposed to be governing this thing we need to have more romans you know these a state cannot survive the eclipse of its own of its own people whether we're talking about the nation at large or just the people who govern that nation, when that begins to be affected, even by its own internally promoted ideology, survival, chances of survival decrease dramatically and rapidly. Right. And, and the more that that's the case, the more that that's the case, the less likely you're able to get the things that you used to be able to get. Uh, yeah, to, the... yeah, right. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, if you, you have to, you have to like look at roads and you, and you look at fields as you pass them and you look at schools and the fact that the school isn't just like a hell war zone, you have to realize that all takes work, right? Civilization takes work. Roads that are in good repair take work. Food takes work to produce. If you don't have people, and then if the people you do have are like utterly dysfunctional on a daily basis, not a whole lot's going to be achieved. That's independent of the question of our gas prices artificially high. Hmm. Yes. But that's, that's actually a shorter term question. And it's the focus on short term questions that I think, as we talked about last week with, you know, the 2000 mules thing, it's a focus on shorter term questions that our media cycle, whatever the ideology induces, and therefore also makes you less and less able to do long term planning about, well, how am I going to get a group of pretty functional men that are able to form families and also be productive in their work when they are 28 years old. We have to start thinking out loud about questions like that on a group, even a national scale, because if we don't, nobody's going to, and our regime is, is obviously not doing that because they're just behaving exploitatively on top of a, you know, constantly shifting population of people that find it hard to make ends meet. Yeah. And, and that kind of comes back to, we talked about it mainly with regard to Lutheranism last time, but the idea yeah. of a group of people that recognize they have a shared vested interest in something that they do not share with others and that taking the energy uh, to protect that. And uh, for that reason, you know, homesteading is not a topic that's completely removed, although certainly historically homesteading is, is hard uh, yeah, and right. historically in America, since the industrial revolution, the go back to the land movements have happened and they've proven themselves to be hard and people aren't good at them. So, yeah. you know, talking about homesteading is fine. It's a nice dream. Oh, all my clothes, my wife spun the thread from our three sheep. But um, that's I don't know that it's something we want to idealize either. No. And that's where, you know, your next point uh, about the energy that is needful for homesteading and or from where I'm sitting, important conversation. What kind of steps do we take to preserve some semblance of fossil fuel world when the fossil fuel world extremes that we've gotten used to go away? 
Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of steam. I'm thinking of wood, right? I'm thinking of those types of things that they figured out before you had to import it from far away or process it in some big facility that you can't afford. And it's not necessarily where you want to go, but you'll go where you want to go. Well, no, I mean, it, it, it is where I want to go because what I want to emphasize this week as well as, as well as next. And, and as we track the managerial revolution down to the stock market crash, and then eventually that'll, that'll get us into the great depression is that if you don't assert self-government, someone else will for you. And I am afraid that a lot of trends, especially among conservative people and Christian people currently are trends that are acceptances of essentially peasantry. And the thing about peasants is not that they don't get to survive. I don't think that our goal should be merely survival, but the exercise of sovereignty within the realms that we have been placed in. That if we don't try to have sovereignty over our lives, our towns, our churches, and so forth, someone else will have it for us. And I think that some of the idealization of homesteading is an idealization of something that is amnesiac. Mm -hmm. Early American homesteaders, and I mean early, I don't mean 19th century, but, but let's say colonial era homesteaders up and down the Eastern seaboard are people who are exercising sovereignty in what they're doing. It may be explicitly that they're running away from indentured servitude, I think, AKA slavery in the case of a lot of the people who settled the Appalachian mountain chain up and down the States. New York had something like that. They had big, I mean, New York basically had what gets called in internet memes, bug man life or living in the pod where giant landowners own essentially everything that you are and everything that you do. And your option is to either revolt as did happen in 1837, or your option is to run away and farther West into New York, or maybe even farther West than that in order to escape it. And you have a similar dynamic in many of the colonies that have large scale agricultural production is you get something that resembles or is called openly slavery for whites and blacks, as we've talked about, and then you have attempts to escape it. it. Those people survived. I mean, they were actually provided for materially and they chose freedom over food security, really freedom over an obvious place to live. The reason they did that is because they want to exercise sovereignty and self-government over themselves. I mean, themselves before we be, even begin to speak about America as desiring independence from Great Britain or something like that on some much larger scale. The insight here is that if we are thinking of these activities as activities of, you know, I, this is quaint or this is interesting rather than this is an exercise of sovereignty, then we will just end up being good peasants, which is fine and will ensure our survival. But as we've mentioned before, the Copts have survived as a Christian minority in Muslim dominated Egypt without the ability to do lots of things that they would naturally want to do, like build their churches in a style that they desire, especially the exteriors of the churches without the ability to convert Muslims without legal and maybe even physical penalties. So yeah, you can survive. Survival is not my major concern here, either in this episode or on the show generally, right? Survival is a matter of specific tactics that have to be engaged in. Like you're going to have to eat horrible root vegetables to survive World War I home front in Germany, or you might have to do this. You might have to cut down all of these trees to have a farm in early America. Those are specific things. And those are up to the listener and their, and their abilities. What I'm interested in is that these things are actually utilized for sovereignty, which is how the early American colonists eventually utilized them somewhat successfully, not entirely, but somewhat successfully, rather than as, you know, this is a more authentic life or something, because that always will involve illusions and then self-delusion about the quaintness of a certain kind of a life. And if you look at people that actually live that life, their life is not quaint. It is constant work from sunup to sundown, generally speaking, in order to have that kind of a life, to have it ready to go. And it's not that that's a bad life. It's simply that if we don't have to do that, since our ancestors themselves chose certain forms of convenience or ease when they could, 
the nice Sunday clothes, the, you know, the books printed elsewhere. They didn't write them out by hand themselves. When they did that, they did that in order to maintain certain forms of distance or convenience that were helpful to them. Like you said, you know, don't, <laughs> your, your, your time is worth more than $10 an hour to drive across town to get the gas. So if you're just thinking of it as, okay, I want this life because this is quaint, you're not even seeing it the way that the people that actually lived that life saw it. They saw it as a set of arduous tasks, rewarding sometimes, not rewarding other times, but just a lot of work. And I don't think that we should immediately say, well, you know, this is bad and that's bad. So I'm going to, I'm going to just retreat into this quaint kind of a life that I could have and I will stay there and thus I will survive. It may be that you will survive (laughs) and then you will be well set up to be a very good peasant under the sovereignty of somebody else. Who decides to institute prima noctra, which is uh, my big my big reason for not wanting to <laughs> yeah, be a Yeah, very cousin. possible, right? Yeah. Very possible. Well, I mean, that that's what happens when you lose sovereignty is is you lose sovereignty right. and then evil men do evil things. And what, what can you do? Um, energy is, again, a, a multiplex word here because we're talking about you know what you would use to power your tractor so you can plow those trees, so you can grow your hay so you can feed your animals so you can eat food on your table Mm -hmm. um you're also dealing with you mentioned you know working sun up to sunset as a person and and you have no choice the sun's up it's light it's time we work and we go until we get it done because there's always more to do because we are in a a a pre-survival mode or something whereas i think what a lot of modern uh current people feel is a lack of energy to do the things that they are supposed to do. There is a sapping of energy. And there's, if there's anything that I'm still idealizing uh, about the homesteading world is the fact that your survival awareness does hit a, a point where you don't get to decide, I don't feel like it. Like it, it just isn't available to you to not feel like it. You simply must. How to engender that kind of energy uh, in yeah. the present seems to be the the great hurdle. And you know, I mean, I can bash TV again, the screen. I, I'm I'm convinced it just saps your soul. But uh, you know, it's I think it's more than that too. Uh, there's yeah. something about our assumptions that lead us to believe that uh, we're not really in danger. So we will go on the on the Discord and we'll shout about all the danger. Um, but it's not like we're uh, catalyzed to then go out and start you know, raising cows in the backyard. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people, maybe some people are, maybe they're not. Maybe it, it is helpful to understand that sheer physical survival is probably a greater concern for modern people than for people prior to this energy revolution that we're talking about, because we are worried about conditions of life that really could only be ob- obtained because of that fossil fuel revolution, that change in how energy powers, not only, you know, this or that business to manufacture something, but also a city to be, you know, awake all the time and people to be wandering around. That is something like urban crime. It is not an invention of modern man, but its possibilities are comparatively endless relative to what you could achieve, you know, at night in 1686 or, you know, 1790. So populations are vastly larger and the possibilities therefore for for evil are vastly larger. Survival, which, you know, you mentioned Aguirre, again, often gets structured in terms of crime and avoidance of crime or warding off criminals. Survival is not for pre- let's say fuel revolution, fossil fuel revolution, man, that difficult in most climates. So a a person who is a really good example of this would be Abraham Lincoln's father, Thomas Lincoln, who wanders around much of sort of the, the middle of the American nation at that time. Maybe we might think of as the mid South, if you want to include Southern Illinois and, and far Southern Indiana and the mid South and on the basis of accents that might, that might be wise at times. Thomas Lincoln is really pretty bad at farming and stories that we have about Abraham Lincoln 
being distracted or, you know, reading a book when he's supposed to be chopping wood or something that is in character for his family, because Thomas Lincoln, by everyone's account, including his sons, doesn't do much at all ever. He makes very poor business decisions. He makes lots of very poor farming decisions. He doesn't clear things that he needs to clear in order to farm. He survives. He achieves nothing. His son ends up being pretty ashamed of him, but he does survive. His father was killed by Indians. That doesn't happen to Thomas because the world is safer by the time that he is a grown man. So, I mean, he survives. I think if your goal is sheer physical survival, there's probably a combination of laziness and cowardice apart from being physically attacked by other Indians or people trying to steal your wallet or whatever. I mean, apart from crime and just violent assault, if your goal is simply just to survive, then it's probably set too low for a human life because one would think that a man would aspire to build something in his life, even if we're just talking about the home he lives in. I'm not saying he needs to be the father of his country, but does he not want to achieve a little bit more than that? And Thomas Lincoln doesn't achieve a whole, a whole heck of a lot. You can go in Southern Illinois and visit what I believe is his final home. And that is significantly smaller and uglier than the home that is on the same site, just through the woods that his neighbor built with a little more ingenuity and energy. So when we're talking about energy, we're talking about on several levels, but one of them is human energy. Not, not to you know, divide yourself among a multiplicity of relatively pointless tasks like modern man, but to have some goal in mind and then to build it. If you have that, I would assume that you want to exercise sovereignty. If you don't have that energy, what I'm saying about sovereignty probably makes no sense because like Thomas Lincoln, you kind of just want to take your ease. What, and there's so much here. Um, you, you mentioned that you know, it was kind of hard to starve, it sounded like, for, mm-hmm. for Thomas yeah. Lincoln. Whereas yep. that, in fact, may be the problem we face uh, <laughs> in, in, the, in the present. And, you know, yeah. um, uh, also the, um, the desire to build being one that seems to be kind of intuitive to man. Yeah. Modern education, modern entertainments have a way of, of just destroying that. But even should you should you want to, you know, you mentioned these guys that are in New York and they don't like being there. They want more sovereignty. So they just go West and find some place. Right. Well, I mean, there's nowhere left to run. If you want to build something in any state, not just the state of Illinois, there is all sorts of people to tell you why you can't do it that way. <laughs> the, and then the end with legal, legal recourse to stop you. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so we really do have a new form of, of spiritual slavery that we're dealing with here and to enact the power of your will against this, um, is it's, it's Herculean, I think, which is why, as we've advocated, having a group that are fighting the same fight is essential because in that group, the support to keep trying is going to be there. Whereas alone, um, you know, again, you're gonna have to be Hercules to pull it off. Yeah. Um, this all is still about energy for me. And I mean, honestly, I, I'm not kidding. I can reach up here on my desk and I can pull this pile of cards that serves as my kind of daily journal notebook. And, um, just uh, was four cars down. This turns into prayers by the time it's en- ending. And, and so it is. It's, it just says this. It says, the energy to do the things I think I want to do. That's there behind. It is not a race. He has embraced death. And you can't focus your focus on this when it's focused on that. The energy to do the things I think I want to do. Why is that there? Because I don't have it. And I don't know why. And it, it is a daily battle against my own heart on some level. I mean, last night I went to bed and I was like, okay, tomorrow's a good day. I got this. I got that. I got this. These things are things I desire to do. I woke up this morning and I wanted to go back to sleep. And this is, I don't think this is just Jonathan. I mean, I'm sure I got my own issues, right? I know I got my own issues, but I don't think this is just Jonathan. I think this is a, a, an oppression of some kind on the human, particularly the male spirit. And 
as much as I can just resolve to do more than survive, I turn around and I face such a, a multiplex hurdle, a field of opposition that there's a part of me that, that just wilts in, in the view of that. And I'd like yeah. to think that I'm strong enough to overcome it. I like to I like to believe that my God is going to pull me through it either way, but it, it doesn't change it. And so, I mean, I say it because I don't think I'm alone. And I know you can speak to it. It's notable that the the group that really affects any change in energy in the industrial or the agricultural sense in American history is the group certainly most tolerant as a people group of personal eccentricity which are the New Englanders, the Yankees, in the, in the narrow sense of that word, not just Northerners generally. I think that one of the things most oppressive about contemporary life is not only what you have to do and, and that there are, there are building codes and there are policy handbooks and there's this and there's that and that life is so bureaucratically circumscribed. There is also the oppression of having to do it in the right way with the right sincerity. That is political correctness, not just as some kind of dynamic about the sexes or about the races or something, but political correctness as a required index of sincerity that you have to reach when you're doing something. So your options are circumscribed. And then those circumscribed options, maybe none of which you actually like for the woman you're supposed to marry or the job you're supposed to have, then you have to feel and act a certain way about it. And it is impossible to be creative without space and solitude. Therefore, if you don't ever have it, you're not going to make anything and you won't have any energy because your life is essentially the life of a slave. That is, I do not think that slavery is just a matter of legality, court rulings, you know, roots of slave traders. Slavery is on a human level is a determination by somebody else of what you will do with your time. And in our, I think, particularly oppressive case, how you will do it, you will be happy to do it, or you will act happy, or you will act nice, or you will whatever else the case may be. And it's not that suppressing yourself is always bad. It's that you're supposed to suppress yourself and get something in return. So you suppress your sexual desire and you get in return lifelong faithfulness from another human being. That's traditional marriage. The payoff is enormous, but we're not asking you to do something forever for nothing. You suppress your desire to say everything you think for the sake of the group. The payoff is the group actually has your interests in mind and fosters your life. You suppress, you know, your sense of what you really want to say to this person in the small town you live in. You get in return warmth and a sense of familiarity and a home to come to that you don't have anywhere else in the world. We ask people on this, <laughs> on this plantation of a country that we live in. We ask people to give up things and to be slaves and we give them in return, you know, $4 and 60 cents for gas. I mean, what, what exactly are people getting out of this? So I don't find it strange that, you know, energy is hard for many to muster because most of us are getting very little out of the lives that we're required to lead. So on pace, you mentioned, uh, solitude as part of creativity yeah. and we talked about, you know, the, the homesteader working all day, but he wasn't running, you know? Right. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And, and nobody is one of Chandler's salient points is that you take somebody that if you mapped him onto the modern world, right. So, you know, that the closest analog you have to something like a federal reserve branch governor, you know, whatever, the head of the St. Louis Fed or the head of Goldman Sachs or something. In colonial America, that guy has a life of extreme leisure compared to his modern counterpart. <laughs> he wears clothing of better quality. He has way more leisure time. And descriptions of what feels like a really busy day to somebody from 
you know, let's just take the some of the financiers of the revolution, Gouverneur Morris, uh, Robert Morris, Haim Solomon. None of those men is rushing through his breakfast. They have three, to us, extremely leisurely meals a day that they don't eat at their desks. <laughs> okay, they have time for socializing. They have time to have, you know, habits and hobbies. Even somebody as, you know, someone who delights in activity and busyness, like Benjamin Franklin, spends lots of evenings. I mean, if you just said, what did he do this evening? He drank wine and he talked to people for four or five hours. I mean, it's relatively speaking, extremely leisurely, <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is so this is, this is true even for their busiest people. So the pace of life is lower. There's, there is maybe more work. There is certainly more production, right? Measures that would be relatively easy to do would be to say, how much is a person who's writing books all the time in 1840 or 1710 or even 1890, right? How much is that person writing? Probably hundreds and even thousands of pages more than a person in an equivalent position today. So in some ways, much more is being achieved, right? But also there, there's, a, there's, a, there's one, there, there's this very big difference that, you know, the, the pace of a given day is not as stressful as ours is, even for people who do, practically speaking, nothing at work, which they realized two years ago when they didn't have to go there anymore. Mm. So pace determined by the wind and the water and the weather and what human and animal muscle can achieve based on those three much bigger factors, the pace of that life is much slower, much slower. And it is simply better for everybody's life. I, I think they are more productive and impressed. I don't, I mean, have we had a Benjamin Franklin since Benjamin Franklin, even though we're much richer and life goes much faster and the tools at someone's fingertips are much greater because Benjamin Franklin essentially retires early. That's, that's how he begins to do his scientific experiments. Okay. So he has a career as a printer. He's got a career as a politician. He's got a career as a scientist. He's a diplomat. He does all of these things. Do we have anybody like that? I mean, if we can't produce one person like that out of a vastly larger population, I mean, to me, that's a question about our population and our pace of life, not about him and his pace of life. So that's, yeah, the pace of life is vastly different with energy inputs that are vastly slower. He doesn't have to make split second decisions hardly ever. I'm trying to think of how to say this. The, the, I, I'm, I'm kind of convinced that some of the modern pace is going to be just the result of being on a plantation where you're being told what to do with your time. And so you're trying to maximize the time that you have yeah. when you have it. There's some of that. But I also think that you know we jest, but we don't really jest about potential powerless, foodless futures. I think that many, myself included, at least pre-2020, I was running away from facing the survivalistic threat that was staring me in the face. When I drank, I drank to forget it. When I watched TV, I watched TV to forget it. When I was hustling from this to that, to this, to that, it was so I wouldn't have to think about what if. And I don't think any of that was on the front of my mind. I think it was an animal reality. And I think it is a herd animal reality. We are a, like a flock uh, or a herd out in the, the wilds running because everyone else is running because we're convinced that somehow it'll keep us from getting eaten and going against that instinct is tremendously difficult. Yeah. And that's why you're tired too. It's because everyone else's energy saying, run, 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 flee, 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 watch more TV, do more of this. So you can just hide from what it is. It wears you out. And that's where, you know, the strange thing that 2020 has given me, I don't, I don't think I've, I've really grabbed it yet, but I've, I've started trying and that is grabbing the older pace to things. Now I have a, a career that as a pastor that, that kind of enables that more than, than some others yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of, it's a pre-modern survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but as a result, again, I, I don't think that, I don't think it's impossible for others to begin to say, 
I can go about this without running. I can go about this without fleeing, but, but it does admit, it does require the admission that, that we're on the brink as a herd. And then facing that with a sort of a, a dauntless fearlessness, um, staring the predator in the face a little bit, and maybe even challenging the predator, uh, to prove, to prove his predatoriness. And this can take a number of forms from, you know, how you act with your boss, <laughs> um, uh, to how you're viewing, you know, 2000 mules. Um, but I, I don't think it's impossible to learn from the pre-modern pace and see that they were because of that able to achieve more than we are now Yeah, that maybe, maybe we should really put effort into, uh, slowing down and not trying to hack so much so we can have more, but instead just focusing on what we're doing, um, one piece at a time. And, and again, this is my own journey. I'm sharing it. Um, but it, it's been valuable and I, I don't want to be done yet because I really feel that I'm on the, for myself, my own personal walk, um, I'm on the front end of something that is uh, much more enjoyable way to live. Right. I, I mean, I, I was delighted by the fact that at least some of the listeners picked up on the desire for better wines <laughs> um, and, and, and the knowledge of them. And, the, and I find that delightful because I think that what you will find in any longstanding civilization is a cultivation of life in all of its facets, rather than simply an opposition to certain things. That is, and you will have positive things that are directly enjoyable and feel natural because of the extent of their cultivation over time and, and over the, the course of one's own life. But, but especially by earlier generations, which is a, it is a kind of a heritage or a patrimony of energy and an investment of energy, the benefits of which you reap as if your grandfather had, you know, cared for the land well and your father had. And so your land is simply more productive than it was when your grandfather was the same age because of the work of your grandfather and your father, and then the work that you're passing on. And therefore then you benefit from the energy of previous generations rather than being utterly antagonistic to them or utterly ignorant of them, uh, both of which are very common among us for reasons that I think are, are native to slave populations where we simply resent people for their submission to evils that we recognize. When you can cultivate, whether it's you know in what you drink or whether it's in how you live, the pace that you keep, how you eat meals, all of these things matter because they are expressions that you are sovereign, not over everything. I mean, I'm not asserting sovereignty over, you know, the nation of Canada or something. I'm asserting sovereignty over the fact that I don't want to eat my meals in an undecorous, hurried, miserable way. I want politeness and manners and the best food that we can put on the table and, you know, nice things. Uh, not as a consumer expression, but as an expression of a cultivation of the life that I've been given. So when we begin to think about life and time as gifts, then they should be cultivated and enjoyed rather than ignored or rushed through. And I think that ignorance and rushing are maybe more characteristic of us <laughs> and of our time than, than almost anything else. And so if we're going to reverse that or, or revert to something better or something more gracious, more enjoyable, then, then we have to give ourselves time to do so and time to learn how to do those things, especially if there, there wasn't a patrimony or if the patrimony were lost or feels unnatural because we haven't cultivated it, then we need, we need time to regain it and to, and to find it again. So let's do mill and plantation distinction here. Yeah. And this will set us up for next week that there are two forms of maybe almost like previews or trailers for utterly modern life, life totally determined by uh, fossil fuel energy and its, and its capacities. And those are the forms of organization of life that you find in the sewing mills of new England as well as in the plantations in the American South, especially after the invention of the cotton gin, which allows scales to be achieved in cultivation of cotton that we, we didn't have before that. 
and, and we couldn't really have with tobacco farming, which is why you first get large scale slavery in, in what becomes the United States of America. So the mill and the plantation preview this idea that you can have large numbers of people all working at very specific tasks that really in the whole scheme of things are like human cogs in a much larger machine. And that those people don't really have an independence of life that the vast majority of the population does in say 1835, because those people are not living on farms that they either rent and then do all the work on or own and do all the work on with the goal of the renter always to be go, to go somewhere so that he can eventually be an owner. Those renters or owners of farms are able to provide for themselves more or less Somebody who works in a mill or somebody who is on a plantation, lives on a plantation, is somebody who is dependent for all kinds of things on all kinds of other people, but who on a day-to-day basis is managed by somebody else. Those methods of management are in their infancy in these places, but there are two things that we want to keep in mind, especially for next week, as we talk about how this modern management system comes into being right. Historically speaking and, and how that gets down to us today. And those two things are this one is that overseers are expensive. So it's easier to have the slaves self-manage whenever you can in new England mills. This is going to be achieved by having really rigorous character investigations of the unmarried farm girls who are hired during the time between when they're considered to be adults and when they get married, that they can work in these New England mills. So, I mean, I, I find <laughs> I find the character investigation to be relatively sympathetic and understandable, but it is a social credit system. If we don't find you in the Sunday school and in the church service, you don't have a job on Monday. So we will investigate you because we want you to be a certain kind of a person in order to work here on plantations, it means that there are relative to the entire slave population, there are relatively few overseers who are not themselves slaves. It's much easier to get somebody who is like you and with you to watch you than to have somebody that is sort of alien to you, right? So you're running that risk if you hire a white overseer for black slaves, or you're running that risk if you're hiring a free black man to oversee enslaved black men, whatever the case may be, it's always easier to have people self-manage than to have them be managed by some kind of outside force. So if they're self-managing their character or they're self-managing their work, all the better. Obviously that's much easier to achieve with a much more extensive educational and media system that we have today than it was in 1835, either in New England or in, you know, let's say Alabama. So you want self-managers whenever and wherever possible. The other thing is that a life in a mill or on a plantation is not, if it's familiar to you, necessarily unpleasant. In fact, you're probably doing less work than the farmer. So literal slavery or what I think some Southerners were at least a little accurate to say that the mills were at least as hellish as the plantations, we'll say metaphorical slavery or wage slavery is a lot less work just in terms of physical energy output very often than working for yourself. If you're done, the most common way of managing work on a plantation was piecework. It's also a common way of managing various things that will get put into factories in the course of time in the 19th century. But if you get done what we want you to get done, we don't care how long it takes you. So if you want to take four days to do something that only takes one day, you've got five days and you took four because you kind of goofed off for three of those days. That's fine. We're not managing you that closely. We don't care that much. And at a certain scale, the productivity of any given individual doesn't matter that much. If I have 537 of them are goofing off on a Tuesday, it's not that big of a deal. Only if I'm really capricious or just kind of uptight, am I actually going to invest myself in punishing those 37? So at the scales of production that require managers at the sizes, this 
you know, average life for any given person is going to be less work on a day-to-day basis than life working for yourself. So both self-management and then also, you know, basically the ease that can be offered when you don't have sovereignty. Those are really important things to keep in mind because we're going to see both of those things grow. And it's, it's the first one that I think, especially in your question about why don't, why don't I feel like I have energy or something? I think it's because the energy that we are using, especially let's say spiritually speaking, is the energy of self-management inside systems imposed upon us, unnatural, alien, and oppressive as they are to the human spirit. But that's what we're doing. And that's why we're tired because we're self-managing. We're checking our work email. We're doing whatever. We're self-managing based on someone else's idea of how we should be. And that's always miserable. So is that what they're trying to reset? I think that what they are trying to reset is the availability of certain goods that in living memory were widely available, like cheap gas, 89 cent gas. That's, that's what's being reset. It's not that everyone is going to be eating a soy-based diet. It's not that everyone is going to you know, live in a cubicle. <laughs> it's not that everyone will be forced to rely on an expanding rail network in order to get around the country because you, you just can't afford to drive a car. It's that the availability of cars and meat and other things will be more restricted. What this is doing is taking a situation of relatively just really historically amazing individual prosperity, especially in the United States, but really throughout the world, and restricting the availability of those things to a much smaller class of people, which will then result in, you know, everyone else going into some kind of mill or onto some kind of plantation where they will then be cared for in many respects, but will be expected to abide by the rules imposed by the Lord. You mentioned the prosperity of the last century, and and it, it continues to kind of amaze me how human, I don't know if it's groups, I know it's definitely individuals, but we do it together. Our, our potential for amnesia is, is so tremendous Yeah, that... Yep. <laughs> the awareness of that prosperity being unique was like lost on the prosperous while it was happening and continues to be, uh, it's going away, seems to be lost on on a number of people as well. And it, it was like we, we had this moment where if there had been some hindsight, there could have been some significant foresight. But instead, we just kind of sold the farm and partied in the casino and well, it just it continues to amaze me. I, I don't know that I am not able to, I, I have to accuse myself as being just as blind as anybody else here. Yeah. But it's stunning. The the level of blindness, it, it just seemed like that was normal. It was normal to be this prosperous. And, and why would it ever be different than that? Right. And maybe that's part of what makes what's next so scary. Um, it's just because I don't know what normal is. Uh, I can imagine it, but most of that's again from, you know, zombie apocalypse video games. And that's probably not what's coming. Not quite. Right. And so I don't think so. No. So, so, so trying to, trying to imagine tomorrow and then have the energy to do something that will be valuable to it today when we're still, golly, we're still asleep. Um, as a whole, uh, the, the, the the whole body is just kind of like rolling over with a, a frustrated yawn. Like we, we, we got a crick in the back and it, you know, I got to roll over, but nothing's really changing. We're just going to keep sleeping. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It's not a great closing line. <laughs> so, well, sover- sovereignty is, is always going to require planning. So if we want to maintain it or to extend it, we're going to have to plan more and be a little wiser than we had to be in the past where it seemed like money, like fruit in a tropical country just kind of grew on trees easily without cultivation. It just happened. Nobody's going to starve to death. Here's a book recommendation, unlike the ones that I usually make. And I hope it ties together both pre-industrial America, farming, homesteading with planning and a a useful future. It's a wonderful children's book called The Oxcart Man. And it is about a farm in what I believe, if I remember correctly, is New Hampshire in some time before the Civil War based on the clothing and how the family and the farm are designed almost like an ecosystem 
to provide holistically and sustainably for the ongoing welfare of the people and the animals on that farm. And this involves a long journey on foot by the father of the family to sell some of the goods. Not everything is going to go away. There will be some commercial and maybe even industrial processes. He buys some industrially manufactured things in Portsmouth when he's there, and then he has to walk back home. And the cycle starts over again. And when they are inside during the long New England winter, they are making things you can make inside as a family and they have to work for themselves. And maybe some of that will be necessary in the future, but it can go on and it is something he can pass on as skills and physical patrimony to his children. So that is a kind of a life that requires a lot of energy. That's what makes it worthwhile. <laughs> you can't get something for nothing. That was perhaps the illusion that we have recently woken up from. So energy will have to be invested, especially not just coal or oil or gas, but human energy. If invested, the patrimony will be marvelous, whatever the future is. If we do not invest the energy, then we will get just as little as we put in we will reap what we do so, but if we sow bountifully, we will also reap bountifully. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.